Thank you for that light. Well, continuing in our series, Learning to uh, Sing in the Desert from the Life of David, I want us to turn to chapter 27. We're going to read through uh, verse 2. And uh, let me do that for us right now. Starting at verse 5. You, you were here last week, so uh, I'm going to pick up at verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I've found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. And by the way, let me just take a moment and show you that country town. Ziklag, down in uh, what is the uh, left-hand corner as you look at the screen. Ziklag in red. And that was about 25 miles south of Gath. And Gath is where Achish was king in a federation of five Philistine kings or, or lords, as they uh, were. And so David has now a, a city uh, that he can develop, build, cultivate uh, down there. And uh, you can see that. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And that's an editorial comment from uh, the author of 1 Samuel in light of the fact that David becomes king of Israel. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Ger Ger Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Malachites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt, so south primarily of Ziklag, as you look at the map. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor women alive, uh, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish, when Achish asked, uh, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, the south of Judah, or against the uh, Negev of the Jerahamalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. These were all tribes of Judah or allies of Judah and enemies of the Philistines. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And the Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. In other words, when you hear the name David, it's a stench, it stinks because he has become fully associated with the Philistines. Therefore, he shall always be, thought Achish, my servant. 
Chapter 28, verse 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. What do you call it when you win, but you lose? There's actually an expression for that. We call it a Pyrrhic victory. Have you ever heard of that? A Pyrrhic victory? A Pyrrhic victory is a, a victory on the battlefield in which the triumph comes at such a great cost that it proves to be more ruinous for the victor than the vanquished. And it's named after King Pyrrhus, who was a Greek. He fought in two big battles against the Romans. When the Romans were starting to expand, you know, the great Roman Empire, well, when they were really starting to expand, Pyrrhus opposed him on the battlefield and won twice. And after the second battlefield, he was congratulated. But Pyrrhus said, one more victory like that and we'll be utterly ruined. And so, a Pyrrhic victory. It's spelled P-Y-R-R-H-I-C, Pyrrhic. That way you can use it with confidence. You'll win people's admiration if you say, that was a Pyrrhic victory or a hollow victory. The interesting thing is Jesus warned of life as a Pyrrhic victory. From Mark Chapter 8, verse 36. I'm just going to capture the essence of what Jesus said, almost exactly what he said, but I want to use the word win instead of gain so that you can see that, in effect, Jesus is talking about what we've just described as a Pyrrhic victory. When he said, where's the win if you gain the whole world at the expense of your own soul. That's a Pyrrhic victory. You gain the whole world, but it costs you your soul. In chapter 27, David has left the desert. You know, all this time, and uh, we calculated that there were a number of years that David was in the de desert, probably around seven or eight years while he was on the move in the wilderness in the desert, uh, being haunted and chased by King Saul in his jealousy and uh, dogged pursuit to kill David. David, after what we read and met in chapter 26, that final confrontation, the last between David and Saul, uh, 
It was something of a victory for David. In a sense, he got everything that he could have possibly wanted to hear from Saul. And yet, in chapter 27, the opening verses, David is alone, left with his own thoughts. And as he describes to himself his situation, he says, in effect, I've had enough. I'm leaving the desert for the city. I'm leaving the country for another king. And he goes to the Philistines and to Achish. Was that the right decision? I don't think it was. But in his condition, he makes a monumental decision, a life-changing decision, not just for himself, but for all those in his trail, so to speak, in his care, in his militia. And even beyond that, a decision that has ramifications for those whom he would touch as God unfolded his plan for David's life. He made a monumental decision on his own. And at first, it looks like a winner. You know, sometimes we make decisions and we judge, did I make the right decision on the outcomes? And as we gauge what's successful or what's failure or what's a win as opposed to a loss, we might be encouraged in our decision. David, as we even read, he wins a place of his own. He gets a city. He's able to settle down there with his militia. All 600 plus wives, children, families. Another win is a livelihood. He's going on raids for Akish. Actually, he's raiding enemies of Israel and not the Israelites or their allies, as he's reporting to Akish. He's raiding ancient enemies of Israel. But in that process, he's keeping busy, and he's keeping all of the cattle, the sheep, the oxen, the camels. He's keeping all of the dry goods and everything that he is able to carry back, he's carrying back to the families with his men at Ziklag. He's got a regular livelihood, and he's not just making ends meet. And a third thing that looks like a big win for David is he wins the favor of a king who appreciates his service. And we see that in verse 12 and even in verse 2 of chapter 28. We can imagine David thinking, I must have made the right decision. Look at the prosperity. But David wins at a cost. Now there is an upside. And as we read this, we see David win with the human exercise of his God-given gifts. I mean, David in verses 5 through 7 is shown to be politically daring and shrewd. He's ever so clever. 
in verses 9 through 12. He's cunning. David shows his skill in achieving his desires. He's crafty, wily, artful. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, we see that it wins him favor. He's successful. In fact, he says to the king, you ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. Now, that's my paraphrase, but that's, that's basically what he's saying. You know, that's a scary moment, by the way. You know, David's been uh, deceiving, and that's the downside of all this. He's had to engage in dishonesty. He's deceived Achish. He's lying to Achish. He's playing the two sides against the middle, so to speak. He is winning favor among some of the tribes of Israel. Later, we'll learn that he gave some of that, you know, like the pirates call booty, the treasure he gave to his own people. But he's got to share some with Achish, and he's got to lie to Achish. And in addition to that, he's got to compromise his identity. He's got to pass him off as a loyal friend of the king. He has to lead a double life. And you know what's really unsettling, even eerie to me, when I think of the downside David starts to resemble Saul rather than David. In fact, when David, we're told, attacks the Amalekites, it's, it reminds us of when Samuel told King Saul that they were to amend the, what the Amalekites had done, and everyone was to be, I mean, right down to the sheep and the, everything was under the ban, under the, the judgment of God. But Saul didn't do that. He kept some things back, and that's exactly what we see David doing here. Where's the win if the victory costs you your own soul? And that's what I want to talk a little bit about. It's kind of like a reverse lesson, spiritual lesson, that we get here from David. Because there are times that in our climb to the top, when we get there, it's lonely. Because we've had to climb on other people. We've had to sacrifice. We've had to give up some of the things that we were taught to uphold as young people by our parents. To be honest, to treat people equally and fairly, uh, to not be deceptive, to not be underhanded, to not cheat. Sometimes on the climb to the top, we have to step on people, use people in ways that are opposed to the very things, not only that our parents have taught us, but now as we make application, God has taught us in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. 
And so it is when you hear about it's lonely at the top. Sometimes getting to the top costs everything that you value and everyone that helped you in the effort to get there. And David is going to be at that place, and that's for next week. Not only is there the cliffhanger when Achish says to David in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, we're going to face off against Israel, David, and I want you at my right-hand side. I want you under the flag of the Philistines, you and all your militia. And we're going to go up against Saul. We're going to go up against your countrymen. Well, David's been playing things kind of coy, and now all of a sudden, it's kind of like when you lie and you follow that lie, you have to keep covering up that lie, and finally, your worst nightmare is having to be exposed because of the lie as something you're not. And that's exactly where David finds himself. And we'll see next week, David gets to a point where even his own people want to put him to death. But sometimes when we get to the end of ourselves, we are at a fresh beginning with God. And that's where David will come and we'll find him next week. But what can we learn from this passage and David's behavior? What can we see in what he does that can warn us in our own walk with Christ, our own walk with God? Well, if you leave the desert to sing in the city, I want you to ask yourself, will God be bigger there than here? That is, wherever you are. And there are situations, that's what we've been assuming when we talk about singing in the desert, because the desert represents difficult times, hard times. And we're all built and wired, and our experiences are different, and sometimes your hard time might seem really hard to me or easy to another. But when it's our hard time, it's like no other buddy, no other or no other person's hard time. And yet what I want us to appreciate is that it is at those times that we're just, we're given to think, I'll, God seems so far away. I feel so all alone in this situation. I'd do anything to get out of this. And sometimes we'll flee to the city just as David did. And I want us to appreciate from David's own life that when it comes to such monumental decisions, to distrust the big decision you make on your own. That's the key words, on your own. Don't make big decisions on your own. And I'm just going to walk quickly through so you get the overview of the whole situation. Don't make big decisions on your own. Because sometimes we make rash decisions and we move in a direction that moves us not closer to God, but into a situation that threatens to call us into compromise and put us in a position to, in a sense, be distant from God. Not because he's moved, but because we've moved. And we do that through making alliances with those who don't worship the same God. And we'll look at that. Distrust the big decision you make on your own. Decline alliances that compromise your faith. And detect the clues 
of leading a double life. Because there are some decisions we make that call us deeper and deeper into that compromise where we become a person that is divided. We're this to some people and that to another. We're leading a double life. And that, and that's just a horrible place to be. So uh, I, I want to walk us quickly through this. We saw last week, and you'll read for yourself in the first four verses of chapter 27, that David um, is alone with his own thoughts. And as I mentioned last week, it's stinking thinking. But it comes right on the heels of chapter 26, which was a considerable victory for David. Saul acknowledged everything that David had said. And in that plea to Saul, David himself said, Saul, and I'm going to put this in my own words, Saul, don't force me by your irrational, dogged pursuit of me and our my militia, my men and their families, don't pursue me to the point that you drive me from the land, from the Lord's inheritance, so that I'm forced from the presence of God and his people and forced to live in a land where God is not worshipped, but pagan gods are served. That was David's plea. And Saul responded and said, David, I'm a sinner. I've been a fool. Come home. I will not pursue you any further. And they went their different ways. But David, in his private thoughts, in his isolation, and that's important, he thought to himself, and what we hear of David, the very first time we're admitted to the inner counsel of his own thoughts, what we hear of David is stinking thinking. He hears nothing but a history of, of Saul's broken word and broken promises. There's nothing of a history of what God has done despite Saul for David, nothing of God's faithfulness. And he needs the counsel of God, the counsel of others at a time like that. Because when we are in isolation, sometimes we make big decisions on our own without consulting the Lord in prayer, going to His Word to hear from His Word whether what we think God is calling us to do is supported, confirmed, and in a consensus with what God has done with others and throughout the pages of his history. And we also need to hear from other godly people in our lives. Why would David isolate himself like that? I think he was discouraged. I think he was defeated and fatigued. And it was exacerbated because he was seeing nothing but negatives. Nothing but negatives. It reminds me of Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah? In 1 Kings 19, I believe it is, 
I had it in my notes, but I see it is wrong in my notes. I think it's chapter 19. Stephen will check that out for me. Verses 9 and 10. Well, the setup for those verses, Elijah has stood alone for the Lord against the prophets of Baal. They're taunting him, making a mockery of God. They're saying, if your God is really God, let him call down fire. I'm right, it's chapter 19. Let him call down fire. And, and Elijah says, if your gods are anything but a sleeper and a snooze, then let your gods call down fire. And he builds a moat around his, fills it with water, pours water over the thing. God smokes the whole thing. The prophets are so embarrassed by God's faithfulness in this situation that the people drive them away and even slay them. And in the very shadow of this fantastic victory, Elijah has doubts. I'm all alone. It's only me. All of Israel has abdicated, turned from the Lord. The king and queen are searching for me. They're going to put me to death. He flees. He runs to a cave, and there in isolation, he's just a beaten man, which is shocking to us. And the Lord comes to him, and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken the covenant, torn down thine altars, killed the prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life. Well, God came to him and ministered to him. But it's, it's you know, it's telltale of how fragile we can be even in the face of great spiritual victories. How we have to be alert to that sense of hey, when I'm alone, I have a way of making things look so much worse than they may be. I forget God is present. I, I feel like I'm all alone, and I forget there are others who are in this with me that I can consult and go to and get counsel from. You know, we, for, we give up God's Word. We are so focused on ourselves that many times we feel entirely alone, and we make decisions on our own that can be entirely devastating. So it's so important to pray, consult God's Word, and seek counsel with others. Haven't you found that in the company of people who, who are just aware of God's presence, alive with His truth and His Spirit, they give sound advice and encouragement. They lift your spirit. It's like they hydrate you with the things of God, you know? Make you kind of juicy in the Lord again. There are other people who can become, they've just become parched and negative, and it's, it's like they just suck whatever life is left in you, out of you. So David, as we saw, is alone. He doesn't consult Abiathar the priest, Gad the prophet, the, uh, the word of God in this situation makes this decision alone. And as I hope I've shown you, it's not a good decision. Then, in that decision, he enters into alliances that compromise his faith. 
And as I already explained, he violates the very principles that, and the very things that he didn't want to happen to his life. You know, you have to, if you're going to survive, you have to have principles built around the truth of God that are inviable. That means you, you're not going to change them or adjust them. They have to be built on God's truth, His Word. David violates some of those principles. When I first became a Christian, I was uh, 19. It's pretty young. And uh, I still like girls at 19. Uh, I wasn't married. So um, I was interested in dating, although I wanted to date God's way and not the way I had been dating. Um, so I was in my first year of college, and I dated a really attractive young lady that uh, we just seemed to really hit it off. I was very drawn to her. But I thought, if I ask her out, that's taking this relationship, this friendship to a whole new level. And I've got to tell her that I'm a Christian. Now, we went out. First thing, I told her, I am a Christian. I live for Jesus Christ. And uh, we only went out a couple more times after that. She really did respect me, though. And when she heard I was married, she got in touch with me. I think she felt, you know what? There's a quality guy. There's a guy that I respect. He knows where he's going. He knows what he stands for. And she highly respected that. But you see, I wasn't going to go places and do things that I would have done before because of Christ in my life. And yet she was still interested in going and doing. And now that took some of the fun that she was looking for in a relationship out of it. I would tell you now, by the way, if you're of dating age, your parents say it's okay or, you know, you're doing all the right things, I would encourage you never date unless you intend to look at that person as a potential person to marry. You should look at, you should do that with marrying in mind. That will keep your heart in the right place. That will keep your actions and attitudes and intentions in the right place. That's an example of, you, you know, dating can draw you into an alliance that can cause you to compromise, compromise your faith. And when affections like they are in dating are so strong, they have a pull on you that will cause you to just give up little things in order to maintain that relationship in false hopes of perhaps changing that person so that you can then again move where God has really called you to be with Christ at the center of your life. How about business partnerships? Sometimes in a business partnership, we enter into a partnership with another person who doesn't have the same values that we have. You enter into a partnership because what? Wow, 
This is a new business that everybody's going to need. We're going to make tons of money. I'm going to get out of the desert finally. I'm going to go to the city here. But to do it, I've got to go with this guy or that gal. And I know we don't see eye to eye on lifestyle and stuff, but that's, it's just business. And then you get into it, and you're making money hand over fist. But all of a sudden, you're being called to compromise, or you're butting heads because values, the things that you were reared to believe in and stand for, are now being challenged because of your alliance with a person and identity and lifestyle that's diametrically opposed to your own. What about friendships? I can remember, I remember so well in junior high and high school, the kinds of stuff I got into. The things that you can't unsee and unhear because of friendships. Because of what? A deep need to be loved, to be accepted, to be approved by my peers. That was so important to me that I was willing to overthrow things that really truly were important to me. I can remember it, it, last year of high school, first year of college before I came to Christ, being in Berkeley, stoned out of my mind, talking with a guy early in the morning about Christ and the nature of sin, because that was still close to my heart. And there is a point in which these compromises take their toll. Allegiances we get into that can only be maintained through compromise. And the worst thing is it leads us to lead a double life, to be a person that we aren't. And that's where David is. There are some telltale signs if decisions in your life are calling you to lead a double life. Watch for doubts. More and more doubt about the Lord. More and more doubt. It's not wrong to doubt. But when those doubts are being created by a sense of your own pride and arrogance, that no longer there's that humility to humble your thinking and be open to other points of view. But because of your own desires and interests, you're pursuing your own interests and your arrogance is causing you to doubt other things and push them aside. Or watch for deceit. We see David being drawn into all kinds of deceit and deception and sinfulness. And then also watch out for dilemmas. David hits a big dilemma, and he is kind of uh, cocky, you know. Hey, you ain't seen nothing yet. But I think internally, David's got to think, I'm going to be found out. I've got to make a decision. I've got to either turn against the Philistines or leave and side with Israel. It reminds me of Jean Valjean. You remember uh, Monsignor Muriel, how he took Jean Valjean in 
and treated him so well. And Jean Valjean stole from Muriel, this, this gracious, kind man, this monsignor of God. And when he was caught, he was brought back, the gendarmes, the police. And even at that, Muriel said, oh, I gave him that silver. Here, you forgot these two silver candlesticks, which were a very precious family heir, heirloom to him. And he gives it to him, and he says, Jean Valjean, do not forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. My brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And Jean Valjean leaves, and he's been touched in a strange way. He can't figure it out. And he finds himself bullying. This, I don't know if it was in the musical, but it was in the book that the musical was based on. And he, he kind of bullies a young child for, for just a, a, a little coin. And he scares the boy away so he can have the coin for himself. And then it hits him, and he cries out, What have I done, sweet Jesus? This is from the musical. <laughs> what have I done? Become a thief in the night? Become a dog on the run? Have I fallen so far, and is your, the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? There are times where we can wake up as David will and return to the Lord. Sometimes it's at the end of our rope, at the end, so to speak, of our run, that God becomes real again for us in our deepest weakness, our greatest need. Did I ever tell you I was a Boy Scout? Yeah, I was this close to being an Eagle Scout. That's another story. But I became Order of the Arrow, which was kind of an inner group within the Boy Scouts, an elite group of hikers and backpackers and stuff modeled on, on uh, the American Indians. And you know that in the American Indians, uh, there's, with some tribes, I guess, I don't know if all, they, uh, when you're 13, you have kind of some testing that takes you to manhood, and the last test would be mimicked by the order of the arrow. And my last test was to, as a young, just like as a young uh, uh, boy, Indian boy, would, uh, he would be blindfolded, taken at a great distance into dense woods, and left to spend the night by himself. And so was I. I was blindfolded, taken for a long distance. I don't know how far we went, where we went. When I was unfold, the blindfold was taken off, I didn't recognize where I was, and I was left there to spend the night. And I got to tell you, when it got dark, it was scary. Every little break of a twig, every, you know, it was just, what's that, what's that? And you, you feel constantly in danger. And you cannot wait for the sun to come up and the break of dawn. And I was, I had difficulty sleeping, but I woke up. Dawn was just, it was gray. And I heard something. 
And I looked around and I caught just a glimpse of one of the chiefs slipping away out of sight. And I realized I had never been alone there at all. And that was the same with the young uh, uh, warriors. Their fathers would stay, although they didn't know it. And that's true of us. God is with us, even when we feel alone. And there are his people, his word, his spirit, and so much more. I just want to encourage you, don't make hasty decisions. Don't make them alone. Don't make alliances that you'll regret, that will lead you into a double life, which will cause you to be a person you aren't. Because the person you are in Christ is your new identity, and it is to become more and more like Jesus. And that is what God wants to cultivate in your life. Don't ever forget that. Will you stand? I'm going to close in prayer. I want to remind you that I'm going to be here with pastors, elders, their spouses, if you would like to pray this morning. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, it changes everything. And if you want to know that today, I'll be here. Others will be here. We invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the it's so real. T- I mean... They're not all prettied up. Uh, you do you talk straight with us about real life in your word, and uh, you teach us so many beautiful things that cause us to uh, make sense of our own lives and how to walk more closely with you. And we praise you for that. Thank you for your Son, Jesus. Thank you for your Spirit. We love you in Jesus' name. We pray. And all of God's people said it.